when we would open up and lay down, we couldn't move. It was total misery. And um, one, on I think on day one or day two, I said, hey, Kevin, I'll, I'll go get water and start making dinner. And he just fell in a heap and said, I'm too tired and in too much pain to eat. My eyelids are in pain. And he passed out. <laughs> That was Pete McBride sharing a bit of his journey through hiking 750 miles of the Grand Canyon. You know all of those amazing National Geographic photos and movies you see out there on Instagram? Yep, that's what Pete does for a living. This is episode 166 of the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Uh, today, thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Uh, we just opened up a brand new online store uh, with some new merch. Head over to wetflyswing.com shop to check out uh, the new reggae uh, wet fly swing hat. Uh, and uh, it's some, some good stuff going on over there. Uh, Pete McBride is here to share some of his amazing documentaries focused on the Grand Canyon and his work with National Geographic around the world. We hear about uh, the amazing Martin's boat story about Martin Linton and um, his work on the Grand Canyon with drift boats down in that area. Uh, we also hear about the, the hike I mentioned earlier, hiking the entire length of the Grand Canyon. Some, uh, some crazy stuff there. And Pete also at the end answers a couple of questions from my daughters. So this is, a, this is a fun one at the end. Before we get started, I wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsors. SoFly Gear, headed up by 17-year-old James Carlin of the U.S. Youth Fly Fishing Team, has a buttery, soft, quick-drying apparel line that I've been loving. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash SoFly and support James and the podcast today. The Fly Fishing and Tying Journal has an exceptional fall edition that's out right now. Head over to wetflyswing.com FTJ to support the great work Craig and the gang have created just for you. Again, that's wetflyswing.com FTJ and also wetflyswing.com SOFLY. This is definitely an epic journey I'm taking you on today with Pete. So uh, without further ado, here is Pete McBride from petemcbride.com. How's it going, Pete? Good. How you doing, Dave? Great. It's uh, it's really cool to have you on here. I uh, recently, you probably get people connecting with you all over the country and world, I'm sure. But um, I found you through. I was interviewing uh, Marty Shepard, who's a guide uh, in our area, and he mentioned Martin's boat, and I had never heard of it, and I watched it, and instantly I was a fan. So uh, we're gonna dig into some of the Martin's boat and all that, and. Um, but maybe you could just start us off and talk a little bit about how you got into making documentaries and your whole background there. Sure. Um, I live um, in Colorado uh, in the Rocky Mountains on the western side of the state. And I have worked as a photographer for, boy, I'm afraid to even say, uh, over two decades. And I've done a lot of work for um, mostly for National Geographic Society and um, Smithsonian, some other folks. And um, about 10 years ago, I was assigned to go follow um, a buddy of mine named John Waterman. He was paddling the length of the Colorado River. And uh, it was just going to be a short project. And uh, to my amazement, uh, when I got down to the end of the river where I was meeting up with John to document the end of his journey, uh, I learned the fate of that river and it doesn't reach the ocean anymore. And I was basically kind of blown away. And um, 
I'm so moved by the fact I didn't know that that my own backyard river dries up um, that uh, I dug further into the project and I did a book and then I realized I needed to tell the story in different ways and so I'd been taking some video and and I made a short documentary about it called Chasing Water and um, used still photos and snippets of video and just sort of sort of a personal project and to my amazement it it got a lot of traction and a lot of attention and won some awards and got picked up by a bunch of companies and put on PBS and hmm. so that was the genesis of my filmmaking. Now I try to do both photography and filmmaking and a bunch of other things too. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, you, you do. And, and I've, I know a little bit of your background there. So chasing water, what, what year was that when you uh, produced that? Uh, that came out, uh, I believe it was 2011 ish. Yeah. Right, oh. right around then. Okay, perfect. Yeah. 2011. And then I think, um, I think Martin's boat, you, uh, you, that, that came out in 2016, right? Correct. Correct. And then, then you've had some other stuff along the way. And then I think recently you had a, um, the Grand Canyon, right? That the hike where you, you, you hiked the length that came out just this last year. Yep. Uh, that's a feature length documentary called into the Canyon. And then I did a, a bunch of magazine stories around that. And then a, a, a book with Rizzoli called, um, Grand Canyon between river and rim, big coffee table mm. clunker. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of stuff. Hopefully we'll hit on more of your, your background as we go here. Um, I, I want to dig a little bit, make sure, you know, on, on Martin's boat, because, you know, I'm going into a little bit of a series on kind of the history of drift boats. And when I watch that, I've never been in any big whitewater that big. Uh, it just blows you away. The, the drift boat, how it's, um, basically with all the surface area it's got compartments it's just different than what we know about drift boats so i want to talk about that and maybe we can just start us off because you know the guy that just sums it all up when you look at him you just you're kind of blown away is uh, martin linton can you can you describe um who that guy was uh yeah um martin linton was is somewhat of a legend in the grand canyon um he's since passed away sadly but he was one of the first um, and early outfitters, and he he was really the guy that that brought the drift boat to the Grand Canyon, and uh, it was his idea to kind of retrofit these boats and make them more more rapid um, friendly, if you would say, um, customized it, and he realized he could run a lot of these rapids in these dories, um, and so he really started that program uh, of taking what people now call dories down the Grand Canyon, which is is kind of like taking a, you know, a, an antique uh, mm. sports car versus, you know, a big pickup truck down the Grand Canyon. Um, a raft would be a pickup truck and a dory would be, you know, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, way more elegant, way more nimble, mm-hmm. pretty easy to flip, though. Mm. Um, so it took really skilled oarsmen to do it. And... Um, and he started recruiting these remarkable um, oarsmen to to carry passengers down there, and a lot of them became really passionate about it. Um, and so, Martin's boat is a short documentary I did for the company called Oars, which um, used to be Grand Canyon Dories, and um, and Martin sold to um, this company Oars, and um, kind of in tribute and memory of Martin. Um, they made a boat in honor of, um, Martin Lytton called Marble Canyon because 
what Martin did is each Dory that he used on there, he named after a place around the world, mostly, I believe, North America, that um, was threatened to disappear or change drastically. So each boat had a, um, a title of a um, specific location that had, had vanished in his lifetime or was under threat. And so the boat that they built specifically in, to honor Martin Lytton was called Marble Canyon. And that um, is the upper end of the Grand Canyon. Um, and he helped actually protect it. So he was instrumental in um, fighting very hard against the Bureau of Reclamation with others, the Sierra Club. Um, to keep a dam called the Marble Canyon Dam out of that region. Um, and this happened back in the 60s. And they ran big ads in the New York Times and other places saying, would you uh, would you flood the Sistine Chapel to see the, the ceiling better? Um, and they really invigorated the public and reminded them that this was, you know, a shared landscape. Um, and so the film was kind of the first maiden voyage of, of the Marble Canyon Dory through the Grand Canyon um, with the boat builder. Um, this guy named Duffy, he was a great boat builder, great oarsman, um, long legacy of, of oarsmen down there. And um, I, I filmed it and, and got to row behind it in the raft with some some helpers and um, tried to do a film and keep my boat upright at the same time. It was was challenging, but it was a real tribute and it was a real honor to hmm. try to tell the story of this, this Grand Canyon, this, you know, river rat legend yeah. So incidentally, uh, he rode the river um, in a dory when he was 80. Wow. I believe I have that right. So, well, he did it 80. I guess he did it again and again. And then he rode lava at 87. Which blows me away because my dad right now, he was born, um, well, he, he was born in 39. So he's getting close to that. And I mean, I've been taking him down the river for years. You know, I can't imagine him running even some of the smaller stuff, but imagine them. I mean, and when you see that photo of him going through there, it is unbelievable because he's just sitting there on the oars and it just looks like he's floating. Like he's not worried at all. He's barely moving. He's going right down to this like crazy white water. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And all the guys, I never had the privilege to ride in a boat with them. Um, but my good friend, Kevin Fedarko, who we can bring yeah. up later, but he's a great writer that I've worked with a lot, but he, he was in the front of the boat when when they went down lava oh, at, wow. at age eight, seven, and all the old boatmen, boat women, um, and people of the canyon. They talk about how Martin would just point point the boat and just sort of let the river do its thing. And more Man. often than not, the guy, you know, the river was friendly to him. So that's amazing. <laughs> it's one way to do it. I know that that, that gives me goosebumps just hearing the story because I know. You know, like I said, I've been in some pretty crazy stuff before and the power, that's what you realize, the power of the whitewater, how quickly it can in an instant just just dump you, you know, from nowhere. And I mean, when you took your, your boat, I'm not sure how many times you've been down that river. I mean, what was that like for you? Were you on edge the whole time? Did you feel like you had it? No, I was totally on edge. <laughs> I was freaking out half the time. Um <laughs> I just coincidentally, I just went was um, invited to do a, a grand trip just recently, and I, I paddled in a ducky, which is sort of the cheater version of a kayak. And um, you know, going through things like Hans Rapid is uh, it's petrifying, super fun. Yeah. But when I rode a raft, um, it was my first time going the full length of the canyon, and the last rapid of the river is called Lava, and a lot of 
guides describe it as being tossed down a flight of stairs while somebody shoots a fire hose at your Jeez. face, um, which I think is a pretty good analogy. So I was with all these legendary um, guides and they're rowing dories and I'm rowing a big clunky raft. Rafts are, you know, believed to be somewhat more forgivable on a certain level. And um, I was filming them talk about the line and this and that. And then they would run it and I'd film it. And then I had to get back up and get in the boat and I would have to review my footage so I could remind myself or actually listen to what they said and where I should go. Oh, wow. Because I was thinking of the cameras and so forth. So I watched, uh, I re-listened to what they said and I tried to follow them exactly. I, I made it, but not, not elegantly. I, you know, it's amazing. You, you go a little bit too far left or too far right on certain lines and you miss the seam and you hit some of these waves and it is like no joke. It's like paddling a boat 30 miles an hour into a concrete wall. They just stop. Mm. And uh, we kind of went up on one tube high sided and kind of threw me out and I climbed back in and the boat didn't flip and we, f- we finished upright, but not, uh, not gracefully. No kidding. And I noticed that with Duffy when he ran on that uh, during the movie, you know, even he, he hit one of those big waves and I think he got knocked around and lost an oar for a second. And I mean, came close to dumping even Duffy, right? He's been down 130 times or whatever. So anybody, it, it can literally, I mean, did anybody else dump on, on that run? On that run? No, mm-hmm. Duffy was, and myself were probably the closest. Um, and there was a bunch of great boatmen. Andre had been down there probably about 150 times. But Duffy's family, I mean, he grew, he grew up in that canyon, um, yep. basically. His parents did a trip um, where I think they did a 100-day raft trip down there. Their goal was wow. to spend as long as possible down there, which is pretty cool, cool concept in this world where everyone's racing half the time. The, they were doing the reverse race. Huh. That's, that's cool. Yeah, there's, there's a ton of history, and that's you know what I hope to dig in more, I think, maybe even – getting somebody like Duffy on or, or some of some of the boat builders um, to talk more about because I am interested in the boat itself I mean for me I've been rowing most of my life and I love drift boats and if I was to go down the canyon if I had a permit uh, to go down there would I be probably good to go if I, getting in a dory and floating it maybe even better than getting a raft which one would I stay upright and have a better chance of uh Boy, you know, I, I presume you're probably pretty good behind the sticks and um, you can read water, yep. which is which is the most important game. But then you, you need to have good knowledge on a few rapids and what lines to take. Um, but even with that, you know, you can you can make a simple mistake or even, you know, a Duffy could, you know, you get uh, upset rapid, you get the, the surge hits you in the wrong way and it can, it can go any, any direction. And that's the fun of it. The one great thing about the Grand Canyon though, is it's, it's for the most part, very, um, it's very, uh, kind of friendly rapids. They flush pretty well and there's no big, there's There's no big big strain or strainer. Yeah. So, so if you dump, you're going to be underwater, you might be swimming, but you're probably not going to get in a a big hole that's going to keep you there or suck you down to the bottom. And I've actually, um, I went down, uh, with some friends and my brother, uh, in a dory. And once again, at lava, the end of the the trip, you know, you get them to the big famous rapid and, um, this guy named Moki, who's, who's kind of a legend is all right. Character of the Canyon. Um, 
he's talking about lava the whole time and blah, blah, blah. And he hasn't flipped and he is and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's easy to psych yourself out. We hit the first wave. Uh, it goes down kind of, uh, it steps down and you have a series of waves. And there's one called the V wave, which is on the right side. And we were taking that line and the V wave is just sort of like blasting yourself through this, like basically two laterals coming and merging together. And then if you make it through the V wave, then you've got the big kahuna wave, which if it surges, it's can be very, you know, challenging. And then a few tail waves after that. Um, but there's a couple little waves before you get to the, the V wave. And we hit one of those and, and, um, Moki lost his oar, just dink mm. gone. And then we, he's looking around and the other oar gone. And so we, we haven't even gone, 10% into lava rapid and we're going, we're ghost riding it. We're doing basically a Martin Litton version without, without oars. Jeez. And the point, the point is that, um, a lot of what happens to a, a dory or drift boat down there is depends on how good you are in the boat. So we just did what you, you're, you know, you're supposed to do. My brother and I just high sided everything like extreme. The boat filled up with water, but we were like hanging our bodies over the edge and, Jeez. And just counterbalancing the whole time. And we, we went through with no oars, fully swamped and didn't flip. So we got wow. lucky. But I think a lot of it depends on your, you know, who's in the boat with you and are they helping. Gotcha. Yeah. And I guess, like I was saying, there's probably some people that could dig more into the boat itself. I was just curious. Um, I wanted to talk to more, uh, get into some of your background, some of the other movies you've done, because you've got some pretty crazy adventures. Um, but as far as the boat, what... I mean, can you describe the boat? I mean, I think of a drift boat. It has basically these, these compartments, which keeps the surface area, keeps water out of the boat. Is, is there anything else to know about those boats? And, and are they a mix between wood and, and fiberglass? Is that is that what they are? Yeah, there's some guys who make them purely out of wood, um, but usually they're a com combination. And um, you have the, the rower sits in the middle and there's two compartments on either side where you can usually put your heavier stuff like beer. <laughs> um, um, but a lot of your gear and then you have potentially two passengers in front and then you can have two passengers in back. And unlike a fishing boat where you'd have, you know, stays to keep you for standing up, these are kind of rigged. So you sit down and then you've got a compartment in the way back behind the two back passengers and way in the front where you can store stuff. And those are all, uh, watertight. Um, so it keeps things dry, but also helps keep the, the boat, um, buoyant. And then usually the passengers, they're not really passengers. There's pretty active participants and they need to high side and they need to bail. So the only place that can fill up with water are the footwells, but that's still a pretty good amount of space. So the boat can get pretty heavy if you, if you fill it up and swamp that area. So the passengers have to be very active with their, you know, with their bailing and, and high siding, but it's a, a pretty, it can carry a lot surprisingly too. these, these, these hatches on either side of the, of the rower, um, are big and, um, kind of take up the, the body of the, the bulk of the, the frame and you, and then under the front seat usually is where your cooler would be, um, so you can you can load those things up, and they they, they respond still really well, um, remarkably well without much weight in them. That's right, and they're big boats. They look like they must be. I mean, the typical drift boat that you see is like a sixteen footer. Those things look like they're a lot bigger. Do you have an idea how long they are? I think um, some some people make sixteen footers. I think these are generally eighteen. I think yeah. I've seen a twenty footer. 
I'm not the expert on on yeah. them, but uh, they uh, I've I think most of them are around 18. I think they're customized kind of for this this the Grand Canyon now, um, but they really are very similar, and they've done they're they're famous um, um, also for for their not just being nimble and and cool looking in the water, but they can move really quickly, and so for a long time, um, back to people racing um there was um some boatmen back in the 70s who um or no, excuse me in 1983 who raced a dory through the grand canyon actually illegally and they did it on this titanic surge of water they released because there was this huge runoff year in 1983 oh, wow. and they nearly lost Glen canyon dam up above it Jeez, that was kenton right this was Kevin Fredarko's book called The Emerald Mile. Oh yeah. And the and uh, the boat was named The Emerald Mile. And the boatman who who did this, um, he actually was one of Martin Litton's um, guides, and he'd become fanatical about you know the canyon and the river and passage of time through there. And um, so that he got two buddies and they they rode a dory through there and nonstop through the highest high water we've seen in, in, in basically half century or more and, um, did it in 36 hours and they flipped in crystal. One of them, I think broke their nose. I can't remember all the details. They did it illegally. And it, that record held, uh, until, um, until like ten, six years ago or something remarkable. Wow. That yeah, I mean, there's so many, so many side uh, tangents and stories we could go into. The Emerald Bile is obviously a huge, a huge book. I think a good friend of mine just recently was talking about that, but I didn't realize it was Kevin. Yeah, because Kevin is also was the person that you hiked the, um, you know, the 750 miles or whatever of the Grand Canyon, right? That was your your partner on that trip. Correct. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I guess that's always a struggle with the podcasting thing here is that, you know, with a limited time, you know, I think, we, you know, again, I always joke about it, but, you know, maybe get, get you back on the show and stuff to talk about. But, I mean, I, I do want to dig in, you know, the Martin Linton story. I guess it goes back to him because he's the guy that really helped, um, you know, get this, this, these style of boats going and the conservation piece, right, which is a big part of what you're doing now. How do you, you know, with your stories, how, how do you decide where you're going to be, you know, what you're working on next? How, how does that all come to be? Uh, it's a, it's a constant dance. It's a challenge. Um, a lot of it is projects. I, in the last decade, I've been working on projects that I really believe in and I believe are important stories and I'm willing to put my own time and, and resources into it and then try to make it back. Um, and those have been focused around water, um, fresh water, around rivers, around fisheries, around um, public lands, conservation. And um, I've just been seeing a lot of these places face a lot of pressure and threats. So usually what happens is I'll, I'll write a proposal to somebody. Um, so the Grand Canyon project I did recently, I wrote a proposal to National Geographic and they liked it and they said, yes, let's do a magazine story. And the project was to walk the entire length of the Grand Canyon um, from east to west. Uh, and so um, I recruited my buddy, Kevin. Um, he was somewhat reluctant because he's not a huge fan of hiking. 
but he's very mentally tough. He's physically very tough as well. Um, he wouldn't, he wouldn't say that, but he is. And, um, we ended up doing this huge project. And then in the course of that, it took us a year to do that. Um, you know, the concept, I like challenge and adventure that also has a, a another story and the, the challenge and physical angle of hiking the length of the Grand Canyon was really just a backbone to talk about what's happening to the Grand Canyon and our public lands and native lands and how things are changing them and how we're loving them to death in places and who's at stake and who's involved. And so there was some, um, we looked at uranium mining, we looked at native issues, we looked at commercial development, we looked at air tours and helicopters um, all while we're walking through it. Hmm. And, um, so it started as a magazine story. Um, and then I got into it and I realized this could be a much bigger story again, because you, you just start to learn more and become more interested. And then I started filming more and then I, um, turned it into a feature documentary, which, um, yep. was on, uh, National Geographic and, um, it's on Disney plus now. Huh. Um, just actually got nom- nominated for an Emmy, which is pretty cool. Wow. Wow. And then I did a, a, a book too, um, which also got some accolades because I think it was just from a unique perspective. So that, that was, you know, started out somewhat, I think it was, you know, a bold concept, but, um, it grew its legs as it went and, um, turned into a speaking tour as well. Kevin and I went around, did some 50 talks mm-hmm. to like 40 cities around the U S and beyond. Um, and so these things really, once you, if you dig into it, um, they can take a long time. Um, so that one took, you know, five years and it was like getting a, you know, doing a master's degree in the Grand Canyon and, and cactus extraction from your feet. <laughs> mm. I've, I've been there. That, that's the, uh, and that's the beauty of, of what you're doing, you know, what you do. I mean, it's got to feel good because. You know, I mean, you're raising awareness. So obviously a big thing. A lot of people see that and uh, and they have no idea. Like that fit picture you showed of the helicopters, that little segment where and you took a snapshot to show that there was like 350 helicopters over the, like an eight-hour period or something crazy. 363 flights that I merged together in a 12-hour period. That's right, in a 12-hour period. So it's just this crazy and, and, and the, the opposite of um, – kind of what the Grand Canyon is known for, right? The quiet and serenity. But, I mean, it is one thing, right? Getting people in that haven't seen the canyon, um, you know, maybe they, I don't know, there's a there's that whole thing. But there's also the tram, right, that you talked about a little bit, the fact that they were going to build this crazy tram from the top down into the canyon. Again, to you know, obviously it's a money-making thing, but get more people in. I mean, how, you know, to get into the canyon, I mean, I guess one question would be, you know, what is the best, I mean, hiking it, um, can you get permits fairly easily on the, the boating? What does that look like? The boating is is harder to get a private permit. They they allow, I think it's 25,000, 26,000 people a year to go float through the Grand Canyon. And half of those, if I understand correctly, are private. And the other half are commercial. So uh, commercial trip's easier to get on, um, but you have to pay more. Um, private, you can just put your name in and some people get them quickly. It's a lottery system. And, um, Mm -hmm. it's the interesting thing is you can actually, it's not that hard to get it at certain times of the year. If you're willing to go down in the middle of winter, which I would argue is really beautiful, uh, less light and it's colder, but it's magical and it's empty. Um, it's a lot easier to get a permit then. 
you have to be maybe a little more experienced. Yeah. Um, but um, I think the you know the popular times to go are, would be May or September when it's not scorching hot. Oh, um, but you know you can get a later trip um, in November, and um, I did one in September just recently, and it was it was kind of a customized commercial trip because of COVID. Um, they were trying to fill it up, and it was pretty empty. Obviously, mm. COVID's yeah. changed things, but so there are ways to do it. Um, and then if you if you if you can't get in on a trip, um, I actually I'm, I'm a big proponent now of just going into the place and hiking. Um, it does have great fishing in, in areas a lot in the upper, and um, you can hike down there and and fish to your heart's content and and hike out and you can get permits for that pretty easily. And um, I, I it's it's a pretty remarkable place despite its size and and enormity and and kind of scariness on a certain level it is it is pretty accessible to a wide range of people um even handicapped you know so it's not often the argument for these big developments is that they want to say there's no access but i would say i would argue the opposite yeah so so access is pretty pretty decent i mean right now if you want to go experience the grand canyon you can do it even without a helicopter or a tram sort of thing 100 percent and there's plenty of great trails and, um, you can rent bikes on the top. There's, you know, there is a handicap trail on the top and there's, there's a dozen trails that are, they're not easy. Um, some are, are very well walked and, and worn and others are a little rougher, but at the same time, uh, I think that's what our national parks are for. They're to remind us what wild places are, not what, yep. what amusement parks are. And I think we have this tendency to try to pave everything over and handrail everything and, and make everything so easy. There's no challenge in it. And I think it's good to have a little bit of challenge, no matter if you want to just hike a little bit and sit on the rim or, you know, hike the whole length. Having a little bit of challenge makes you realize the beauty and magic of it. Yeah. yeah and, no. you know catching a big fish if it was easy it wouldn't be as much fun that's right yeah that's why everybody we joke about it here with the fly fishing that's why a lot of people turn from gear fishing to fly fishing because it's just it's harder you know you could once you mat or in the same thing with spade or, or going for steelhead you know over here we have a lot of steelhead and and sometimes you can go hours and days without catching a fish but that's that's part of the challenge so it's uh yeah that's part of that that's it that's it so i mean the grand canyon again going back to it i mean martin linton i keep coming back to this person because i remember watching it with my family and just seeing that guy and we were all in awe of this guy because he was this bigger than life character you know he was gray and grizzled and still and and basically saving you know saved part of the canyon who is i mean who's out there now who's the present day martin linton or who's kind of helping to make sure these trams and these things don't come in there it's a good question. Um, I don't think there is one person. Um, I know Kevin and I have done what we can um, through media and through giving public lectures and, and doing books and documentary, but we're just small voices, really. Um, I think there's a good collection of, um, of nonprofits working around it. Um, Specifically in the Grand Canyon, there's one called the Grand Canyon Trust I work with, um, and they work with 
native peoples and, and a wide range of people and try to present all the issues and get the science behind it and figure out what's this, what is the status of freshwater and what really is going on with uranium mining and how dangerous is it to the ecosystem and, and what do the Navajo believe about the tram and what do the Hopi believe? There's 11 Native American tribes that surround the Grand Canyon National Park. So there are a lot of different views and voices and they're pretty good at it. And then there's, you know, the local you know, grassroots heroes that are involved. So with the tram, um, for those your listeners that don't know, this was a billion dollar development proposal to wow. build a tram um, in on Navajo land that would take people um, 1.4 miles down 3,500 vertical feet um, to the confluence of the Little Colorado and the Main Stem Colorado, which the Navajo and Hopi and other tribes in the area believe is is their is sacred. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hopi believe that's where they merged into the world from this this amazing place. The Little Colorado runs turquoise blue when it's not raining, when it's not muddy, and so it's this really striking visual to see this this bright bright kind of fluorescent blue coming into the green waters of the of the Colorado. Um, it's green because if it's running clean, it's running out the bottom of the dam upstream, mm-hmm. and uh, so it's really a remarkable spot perhaps one of the most magical i've ever seen and so a lot of people believe this should be left as, as it is and and um um anyway there was this proposal to build a tramway there and have an eatery and a big walkway and you could bring um 5000 people a day yeah. um so it's going to be hugely impactful and this small band of navajo women said wait a second um this is our church. This is our Sistine Chapel. We don't want this here. And it was a small group um, called Save the Confluence. It was predominantly Navajo grandmothers. And they got together and went around and got 80,000 signatures and did a bunch of lobbying. And they were able to eventually get in front of the um, the Navajo Council, which we documented in my, my mm-hmm. documentary film, um, and have the council kind of about face and turn around and vote down this tram. So it shows what, um, what very impassioned, um, grandmothers can do. Um, I mean, only four of them spoke English too. Most of them just traditional Navajo. And, um, so I would say that there's a lot of, you know, very courageous, very brave, um, versions of Martin Lytton in their own, in their own realms doing doing great things doing great and, things. um so that's that is amazing what what do you think somebody listening here we've probably got a lot of people that you know obviously everybody knows about that area but maybe hasn't experienced what, what could people do that are listening now how, how could they help make sure i'm sure these, these there's other developments that are out there i mean how, how do how do we as normal people come and help that uh the, i think the first thing to do is just get in engaged and realize that um whether you're interested in the Grand Canyon or you're interested in another park, national park, state park, that these parks are only as strong as what the current generation supports. And if we're not paying attention and we're asleep at the wheel, um, then it's pretty easy for these these places to change. If if these Navajo ladies hadn't done what they did and, and a bunch of other groups weren't working around it, um, there might be a tram in the Grand Canyon. If Martin Lytton hadn't done anything in his time, there would have been a dam there. So it, yep. first and foremost, it takes awareness and being um, up to speed on what's happening in these places. And then secondly, 
find out the group that you think is keeping an eye on it that you can learn from that you can partner with um again grand canyon trust is a group that that i help work with and they do petitions and they provide information and they work with a a wide spectrum of 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 voices native and and non-native and um and i think they do great work but there's plenty of there's plenty of these groups out there for each park doing that and the challenge with national parks is they can't lobby for themselves Hmm. they um they just basically have to you know take the center line and 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 just do their job and and that's that's because they're trying to be apolitical and so as politics change and you know if you really care about these places it's good to get involved and remind that it's um it's your place but it requires your attention too and now a quick word from our sponsors The Fly Fishing and Tying Journal has a great fall edition that's out right now. You can find Lucas Stevens, who visits Winston Fly Rods in the fall edition, for an insider look and a rare interview with Ted Leeson. Patrick Wall pays homage to Harry Lemire's tied in hand Atlantic salmon flies. Boots Allen takes us to the pond with a masterclass in Steelwater. Dennis Dabo also travels to Scotland in search of uh, salmon. Good to have him uh, him on here. I'd love if you could stop by uh, right now and uh, just press pause. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash FTJ and subscribe to the magazine. You'll get that issue delivered to your door. That's wetflyswing.com slash FTJ. We are also supported by SoFly Gear, led by Chief Apparel Guru and Team USA Youth Fly Fishing member James Carlin, who has a great clothing line that you're definitely going to love. SoFly's mission is to produce clothes that look good, perform well, and can be worn on and off the water. Plus, uh, most importantly, are manufactured uh, with under sustainable methods. They do this with bamboo. Bamboo is a this shirt has a great mixture. I've been wearing it, it all around. It dries quick. It stays warm. It's soft. Uh, it's it's good to go. Pretty amazing stuff. You got to check it out. So um, if you can, you can head over to wetflyswing.com/sofly and get started today. Uh, that'll help support uh, James and the podcast in one shot. That's wetflyswing.com slash S-O-F-L-Y. Okay, back to the show. So, I, you know, I wanted to <clears throat> touch on a little bit of some of the other stories, and, and I know you've covered that before and talked about that on other podcasts and, and out there. But, um, you know, Kevin Fedarga, I want to talk about him because, it, I, I, you know, when you watch that movie of you guys hiking it, you know, and you mentioned already, but you saw the power of you guys and Kevin. I mean, what what is that? You know, knowing him, it sounds like he was a great partner to have in there. You know, what what have you learned from from Kevin? You know, over your time knowing him, and I and I think more on a perspective of you're down in the canyon. When I look at it, I think of you guys are two different people, and he kind of comes off as this guy who's kind of you know, I don't know how you say, it, almost like he's like maybe shouldn't be there, but deep down, he's actually really awesome at you know, doing what you guys did, which you said, right? More, more people have landed on the moon that than have hiked what you guys did. So he must have some pretty, like some superpowers that you don't see. Yeah. He, he, I mean, he's, uh, I don't know. I pause because I just don't know where to begin. He's, he's taught me so much. Um, it's kind of like an older brother in a way. He's a, a very good friend. He's kind of like a mentor. Um, personally, I think he's a, a, a remarkable gifted writer. Um, and he is a bit like Eeyore um, in the film and on our experience. He's sort of like, oh, what am I doing here? And I'm depressed and it's, you know, it's it's somewhere it's raining, I'm sure. 
is kind of his That's view right. of the world. He's a pessimist. <laughs> yep. But um, um, I think what I learned from him, which I also learned um, full stop from the canyon, is is the power of humility. Um, Kevin's a very selfless, humble human being. He's he's you know done a lot of remarkable work and and gotten a lot of accolades for his writing, but he he's he's the last person to bring it up and he's always the first person to um ask about somebody else and ask questions and put himself in the background and um the canyon definitely teaches that um in spades as well but um i learned it from him kind of on a day-to-day basis as well and just seeing how he operates and um and also um he's just a great deep thinker and um i think um I'm easily distracted in the modern world with all our technology and social media, um, for better, or for worse. And he has stayed away from all that. And I, I see how he it helps him kind of keep his mind on the train tracks of, of kind of deeper thought and, and crystallize ideas better. And I'm, I'm always impressed and moved by that. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. It definitely is. It's cool to see. I'll I'll put a link out in the show notes to the. You know, I think a lot of people have probably heard of the Emerald Mile, but that's uh, you know definitely a great one. Um, so maybe you could talk just briefly about some of your other. I know you've had uh, some like some Everest crazy experiences and some stuff in Africa. I mean, when you think about your career and the stuff that you've produced, what 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 sticks out to you first? I mean, do you have a few memories that really come out first that you you highlight or you think about often? uh there there's there's a lot um um i've had i've been very privileged and fortunate i've been i've had um i think the grand canyon will stick out because it was so big and it was such a big project um it's probably kind of one of the most complex and and most uh, ambitious overall project i i did um but I've had um, I did work on on Everest, which I was very proud of. I did a story with Kevin there as well, mm. um, telling the story of the Sherpa that built the route on the south side, from base camp up to Camp One. They're called the Kumbu Fall Ice Doctors, and they're it's just a story of unsung heroes. And I felt good to try to tell the that type of story. And um, I think I I used to do a lot of predominantly adventure. Um, for the adventure's sake, and now I I try to weave in more adventure for conservation sake. And um, but back when I was doing more of that when I was younger, um, that one stands out. Um, my first trip, um, my first story for National Geographic, um, was a very risky kind of um, gamble on my part. I um I just saw it as a a really unique story and and a remarkable adventure of, of these aviators that i met um they passionate about antique aviation and they they built an exact replica of a 1919 world war ii style twin engine open cockpit biplane called a vickers vimy um 68 foot wingspan um two giant engines that sit right just 11 inches from the center of the aircraft where the pilots sit um two of them um 11 foot span propellers and it flies at a top speed of 65 miles an hour and it stalls at about 61 miles an hour. (laughs) It's, it's pretty amazing what they'd built, um, back in the day, but in today's 
um, realm. It's it's pretty clunky. But um, this plane was famous for flying um, first plane to fly across the Atlantic um, nonstop. Bef- um, eight years before Lindbergh did, first plane to fly transcontinentally from London to uh, Darwin, Australia, and the first plane to fly from London to Cape Town, South Africa. And so these guys did a National Geographic story um, doing the transcontinental one, and then I teamed up with them and volunteered and helped them and was able to secure my spot as a seat as a young budding photographer uh, to do the London to Cape Town, um, which we reenacted the the first flight of a plane that ever went through Africa, um, which was in a Vickers Vimy again. And um, they did it in 1920, and they crashed twice, um, and they did it in 43 days. We crashed once and we did it in 58 days and we had modern technology of GPS systems and radios Jeez. and they didn't. So it goes to show how hard it was, but just myself and um, the guy who built the aircraft named John Lanou and a guy named Mark Rebholtz, uh, who was a United airline captain and, and myself. And, um, we, we somehow bootstrapped this thing down there and I took a bunch of interesting angles of the plane and rigged cameras around it. And, um, and that became my first story for National Geographic, which I guess sort of springboarded me into what I do today. If I, mm. if I hadn't done that story, I don't think I would have continued. I, I was toying with the idea of going to medical school, to be honest. So wow. Wow. set me on a different path. That's amazing. So that, that's your, I mean, that's your turning point story. That's the one that, and I think on that one, you, you mounted some of the camera, like the cameras you had to, to wings and stuff right before there was the GoPro, you kind of did some stuff that hadn't been really done before. Yeah. And it was all, um, you know, film too. So it was slide film. So you'd mount a camera out there for a five hour flight, you know, you only had 36 pictures. So you're very careful of what you took pictures of. Oh, wow. And, um, and you said you crashed. What, what, what was that? Uh, take us to that moment. Uh, we were about halfway through the trip, and we were went up to do um, some air-to-air photography of the plane in front of Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, so I had a friend who lived in Kenya, and he he gave me a lift in his um, Cessna two, um, 206 and took off the back door, and I sat in the back, and and we could match speeds. Uh, he could slow it way down um, to about 60. So we're trying to get air-to-air pictures of the Vimy kind of in front of this iconic highest peak in Africa. Um, amazingly, it could actually, when it wasn't too loaded with fuel, it could get up to about 12,000 feet, you know, open cockpit, covered in fabric. This big thing cruising along. And we um, we got the pictures and we came and landed first and I got out and I was pretty tired and worn out. And I said, well, I guess I'll just take a picture of one more landing. And they came in to land on this, uh, on this just basically Savannah. There was really no runway. It was just grass and, um, the side wind kicked up and it caught the wing. And they, as they came into land, they, they hit one of the wings, um, and kind of bounced and, and recovered and took off and quickly turned around and landed again. Um, and uh, it didn't didn't like roll the plane up in a ball or anything, but it definitely tore up the the aileron system. And so we had to um, this guy John and I had to rebuild the whole like um, aileron turning device on the, the right tip of the of the wing, um, which in the middle of nowhere with lions and whatnot. So it was, it was definitely memorable. Um, yeah, I had a lot of kind of frightening and joyous memories of that trip. We got intercepted by a 
French Mirage fighter jet, but we didn't know they were French. We thought they were Ethiopian that were potentially going to shoot us down. So, oh wow, that got me a little puckery. Damn, say Damn. the least. Uh, what? Um, and and um, so, can we find out now? Is there a movie of some of the of this footage that you're talking about here? Uh, there was, um, but this was way back in 1999. So this was all pre-internet. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm actually staring at an old, uh, (laughs) VHS of it. So, so you can't, so we can't go on to, we can't go on to YouTube and watch it right now. I know I gotta, I gotta, I gotta digitize it all. Yeah. I gotta get that out there. Yeah. I made a short thing and, and did a big magazine story. It came out in the May 2000 issue of National Geographic. Okay. Yeah, that's probably available online. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, the magazine thing is interesting. I've interviewed some of the biggest editors. In fact, the episode that just went out today is with Tom Bai, the Drake magazine, one of the big fly fishing magazines. And he's got a really interesting background as well. But um, it's always that struggle. You think about the magazines because once once they're gone, you know, it's like that you don't really have. Well, I guess I think more as we go, there'll probably be more online stuff. We're already seeing it. But yeah, it's kind of disappointing that story. I, I want to, I want to see that, or you know, I want to read about that. You know, you're, you're, and see some of the photos of, of what that really looks like. That's it's interesting. Yeah, I'll have to get some. I've occasionally put um, a photo or two up on my Instagram. Oh, um, cool. So I try to keep it alive there. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. So, and I know, I mean, the planes. When you talk about this, I mean, I'm you're puckered up. I mean, I'm just thinking, wow, how do you get back on a plane? I think of the last time I left Denver and just a normal commercial airplane, the, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but the whole plane just before we took off, lifted off, it just swerved way to the left. And, and everybody on the plane looked at each other and were like, what the hell is this pilot drunk? You know, what's going on? And it was just hit by a little gust of wind, but it felt like the end of the world. Um, and, and for you, I mean, you're out there doing this story and stuff. And I know your dad, right, um, I think still flies planes. Is that, do you attribute, um, you know, your interest here from your dad or is it is there more than that? 100%. So my my father flies um, uh, an old, I think it's a 1974 Piper Cub. He used to put it on skis and land uh, in the hay field. We grew up on a cattle ranch uh, here in central Colorado. And, uh, he was the one that actually kind of pushed me to do more on the Colorado river. And, and then it kind of led me to doing film work, but I, I ended up hiring him at his cost, um, to be my aerial kind of platform. So I, I, it was a really good bonding thing and we'd go up and fly and chit chat about life and then try to document the Colorado river and what's happening. And we had a few scary moments but he's a great pilot and um i think it gave me huge respect for aviation and and um uh, i've since gone on to work on my own on my pilot's license as well um but it's honestly it's more fun just going with my old man to be honest Hmm. (laughs) that is amazing Uh, and he's still he's still up there flying he's uh about a year younger than your dad and he still flies yeah it's a little nerve-wracking but (laughs) um one of those things, it's, it's a hard thing to, you know, take yeah. away from him. It's his one last freedom. I know. And he's safe and he's good and he's been doing it for a long time. So Yeah, that's it. It seems like, yeah, versus rowing a boat, which takes probably a little more uh, strength in certain situations to, to get through a rapid than turning a steering wheel on a plane. Yeah, just stick and rudder he's pretty competent with. So Yeah, yeah. That's it's sort of like riding a bike for him. Uh, that is crazy, yeah. 
Man, there's again, like I said at the start, there's so many, you know, so many ways we could dig into it, and we're we're not going to have enough time. Um, I I did want to touch on, you know, another big influence of yours, and you noted it, um, I think in in an email that you sent. But um, your grandfather and fly fishing, obviously, you know, I I've had now like 160 episodes or more of some of these great fly fishermen. John Gearock is a great writer who was on. He re, when you're talking about the plane, he told a story. I'll put a link in the show notes, but he told a story about taking off in one of those cubs up in Alaska and going up the channel and they were just lifting off and the stream was turning left and he thought they were going to crash. But the plane pilot was so good that it was just, that's part of the takeoff. He just banked it left and they made it out. No problem. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, thinking about that, I mean, with your fly fishing, it was your grandfather your biggest influence, and 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 what? Take us back to that with your fly fishing experience. Yeah, um, my mom's father. Um, he's an interesting guy. He's he's since passed. Uh, he lived a hundred and one, and uh, he he'd usually come stay with us. He actually was born in Guatemala, and he ran a coffee finca down there. Um, and he was just kind of this wonderful very vibrant soul, love stories and, um, love being outside and mucking around. And for him, his, his deal was, um, he, um, he moved back to California when he was older. And when I was a little kid, he'd come and stay with us in Colorado every summer for a few weeks. And his thing was fly fishing. Um, and if we weren't fly fishing, um, he was building tree houses. So I was always helping him, you know, build these funky tree houses. And then when we're done working, we'd go fish and, um, he was super old school and, um, he'd only use dry flies and, um, you know, he, he wasn't, he was a little tottery and, and wobbly, but he could still cast, you know, hundred feet, no problem. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how he did it. He'd sort of, you know, couldn't see very well and he'd had to, I'd always have to tie his flies on and, and he taught me how to tie flies a little bit. Usually these, these mothballs type deals, but, um, he loved it, and we'd spend uh, a lot of time together just in quiet fishing. And I, I, when I look back on it now, you don't think of it as a kid. I enjoyed it as a kid, but a lot of times, you know, I, uh, when you're a little punk kid, you're like, I want to go be with my buddies. Yeah. Um, but now, in hindsight, I'm like, wow, what a what a real privilege um, to spend so much quiet time with my grandfather. And 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 I think I, I have a greater appreciation for um, the outdoors. For, for wildlife, for wilderness, for fisheries, for freshwater, the whole system um, because of, you know, little interactions like that and mm-hmm. staring at a tiny little bug out in the water on the end of a piece of line. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he would always, uh, he'd always outfish me. And then um, the other funny story is he would, um, he'd love to eat them too. Yeah. He'd only take, you know, he wouldn't take a bunch, but he'd always love to he was always like messing with fisheries and trying to like, he'd, we had a cousin down the road and they would stock one of their ponds and he'd be like, come on, Pete. Uh, or he'd call me Pito and we'd, we'd go down there and he'd fish and then he'd get all the fish that he caught and put them in a bucket and he'd transfer them up to a pond near where my parents live. So he was always kind of secretly yeah. like trying to manage the fisheries. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Or, you know, stealing fish technically. But yeah, it's all <laughs> So that's cool. So yeah, your grandfather and then you do still do some dry fly fishing. Yeah, I live, um, I live not, um, overlooking right now the Roaring Fork river and the frying pan river. So um, I fish there quite a bit. My brother and I have an old beater, uh, fiberglass, uh, drift boat 
so we usually go out a few times in the summer and um uh it's an older brother and he he probably loves fishing more than i do and um and which we so we both love it a lot <laughs> and usually when we go out and and fish and it's always it's just like clockwork every time the fishing gets good right at dusk and we should be pulling the boat out of the river because we we can't really see anymore but yeah we keep going so we end up fishing into the dark and then usually you know slamming the boat into something and getting into some sort of folly or some sort of trouble but it's fun of being brothers yeah. i guess is it a uh, fiberglass boat yeah. What uh, what type? I think we would have. If it was wood, we yeah. would have sunk the thing. You would have sunk the thing. Is I'm just curious because I've got uh, I've been talking to um, a number of drift boat companies. Like I mentioned, I've got this little series I'm going to do, and I'm going to interview some of the biggest drift boat company uh, founders and owners out there to kind of tell more of the story. Um, what would you? It was. Did you? Do you know what type of boat it is? I think it's an it's an old Clacker craft. Oh, nice, awesome, yeah, yeah, and Clacker, and actually, I've talked to. Um, the founder there, he's actually a little, a little more challenging, a little skittish, doesn't really want to get behind the microphone. That's always sometimes a challenge for me to, to make, um, you know, the argument to some of these people you, you'd love to get on. I mean, what would you tell me if I'm getting ready to do this little series on the drift boats? I mean, you're obviously a great storyteller. What sort of tips would you give me to make sure I produce something that people, you know, would love to, to listen to? Well, I think you do a good job. Just get them to tell their personal story and you know, mm-hmm. so we're lucky. Um, I think most people are interested in human stories and if they're selling a product, it probably helps them sell their product. Yeah. Um, that's right. I'm not really selling a product here. I'm just trying to sell awareness. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Your product is, um, I mean, yeah. What is your product? How, how do you, how do you make your, your living with what you do? Well, I, um, I, I do sell my photography. I do, you know, people buy my imagery as fine art and um, people hire me um, to do stories. So I just wrote a piece for the Smithsonian about um, actually about silence, which I think really about quiet and nature and how we're losing it. Um, I think that relates probably why a lot of people like fishing. It's a way to get out and get away from it all and, and quiet in a way that's just quiet away from machines, not quiet from quiet of a river or quiet of, of nature itself. But that's becoming harder and harder. So I, I, I freelance like that. And, um, and then I used to do a lot of public speaking for companies. So I'd come in and try to inspire them to think about things and they'd pay me to do that. But that's, we're in a different world now. So, I'm, um, still doing filmmaking. I get hired for that. And, mm-hmm. um, and then I do a lot on social media with Instagram, um, which I, I have a mixed view on. Try to get away from the screen as much as possible um, for my own sanity. Yeah. Um, but it is a good way to reach eyeballs and companies um, like to hire me to, you know, if I agree with their message and I believe in their message, I'll, I'll, I'll do a, you know, a post for them for, yeah. for work occasionally. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, on that dry fly, I love that you said dry fly fishing because we are also in kind of a, I like to break the, the main show up into seasons and, and we're in a dry fly season. So I'm trying to find guests that are interested and, in, you know, and experts in that field. But what are your, you know, if you, if you had to say your couple of dry flies, do you find yourself leaning back towards a couple of, I'm not sure what hatches you guys have out there, but which, if you had to pick a, a, you know, a couple of flies, what would you go with? I mean, I like, i I like, uh, well, I live on a river that, um, caddis is pretty good. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but I also just did a trip this spring with my brother and some friends and the, they had this, um, stonefly hatch that's really hard to time. It's on the Gunnison yep. and, um, black Canyon of the Gunnison. And if you can time it and get down there and we fortunately did this year, uh, you know, they're hit, they're flying into your face Nice. and, and it, it's just a total hoot. It's every, every other cast and, um, it is, it is an exciting time and you're floating and, yep. Usually two people, maybe three fishing out of one boat and you try not to tangle and it's a narrow granite, um, steep walled Canyon. So it's easy to get, um, kind of hung up, but, uh, it's a super, super good time and a lot of action on the, on the line. That's amazing. Yeah. That would be, that would be one of my favorites. Again, it comes back to that because it's so rare. It, it takes so much, you know, patience and effort yep. and when it lines up. It's awesome. That's right. Yeah, they know that we have a yeah, it's same hatch out here and if yeah, if you hit it right, you can just nail them. If you don't, yeah, you might not get anything at least on the surface. So Where are you based? Uh I'm out in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, got it. Yeah, yeah. So so we've got some of the same, you know, it's different, but I've interviewed a ton of uh, like I said John Gearock is in Colorado up near one of the national parks and I've had some some really great um uh, guides from Colorado and you know, I think Colorado is actually, when you look at fly fishing, I think per capita, there might be more fly shops in Colorado than anywhere else. Plus, you know, just the beauty. I, I think we always talk about that too. It seems like, you know, if there's any place that we would live, you know, obviously it rains a lot here. I mean, Colorado, you, you guys are seeing it. I know just more people moving there, but Colorado is one of those places where you can see yourself. I mean, what, what do you, what's the one thing, you know, if you had to pick one thing out that you love that keeps you in Colorado, what is it? Uh, definitely the, I, I like the, um, the diversity of the outdoors and of seasons. Yep. Um, it just keeps you on your toes and, and things keep moving and not always in the most pleasant ways, but, um, it's, uh, it makes you appreciate each, each season and each moment and you see the cycles of life a little bit, which I, I appreciate. So yep. I'm, Two days ago, it's it's of course gotten wonkier and weirder with climate change. Um, we see it in the fisheries here, and drought. Um, so the fishing has gotten harder. Temperature of the river's gone up and so forth. So it's challenging and seeing disease creep in a little bit. But just a you know example is 60 degrees two days ago and it's minus six today, and Damn. I'm looking at 18 and 18 inches of snow. Wow! And it just happened like that and. It used to, we used to get snow like this, but it wouldn't go from 60 to minus six. It would wow. be a little more gradual. But I do love that, that general change. And, um, I love you. You can fish, you can bike, um, you can, you can fish in, in a deep river on a, on a drift boat. You can wade fish, you could hike for five hours to 12,000 feet nearly and fish in a high mountain lake. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I love that. And then in the wintertime, you can maybe go skate on some of those high mountain lakes. We've done that a few times. And Oh, wow. Yeah. Skate, look skate down like, black like, ice. Uh, like ice skate? Ice skate, yeah. Wow. So uh, occasionally when we get the cold snaps without the snow, these lakes will freeze. And you can go kind of have your uh, conversation with the fish with your ice skates on above them. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> Yeah, and then, and, of course, you can ski. And yeah, and you can ski. Which, which uh, you have some history there. Um, 
So we, we probably won't dig into that. I think, uh, Pete, I'm going to take us out of here uh, pretty quick here. And, you know, again, going back to your movie, you know, you've had a number of them and maybe we can highlight the best place that everybody can find those in a little bit. But, um, you know, in, in the name of the Grand Canyon, remind me again, the, the movie that you guys wrapped up. Uh, in, into the Canyon. Yeah, Into the Canyon. So Into the Canyon. So we just watched it just a couple of nights ago or maybe it was, or, yeah, recently, whatever it was. And, uh, and I watched it with my family. I have kids, you know, they're six and eight, you know, and, um, and they just loved it, right? They, they already love the outdoor stuff, so it was easy for them. But they were asking all these questions. And I said, okay, each of you come up with a question for Pete. I'm going to be talking to him this week. So I got I got a couple of questions for my kid. This is from uh, my six-year-old. And she, she wanted to know, know about how you hold your phone in, in the images, like in the video that you got on that. Can you talk and maybe just talk about that and then how maybe a couple of tips on producing like video outdoors? Um, sure. Well, tell your six-year-old thank you <laughs> for watching the film and taking interest. And um, I didn't do any footage with my phone. Um, oh, right. So I used a little more professional camera. Um, I used a, a mirrorless Sony camera. And I would um, – it's a good question because initially um, I didn't plan to do that. But I, I got so tired at the end of the day that I didn't take notes anymore. So I would just turn the camera around. I would I would – manually focus on my hand i'd hold my hand out at arm's length and i would focus on that then i would hold it and turn it around so i was now focused on my face and i would just push record and i would walk and i got pretty good at holding my arm steady while as i walked and then and then that became kind of my diary and then we realized that that might actually be a good um, tool for the film as a way to kind of break it up and so that's how we did it it's a, so no selfie stick you're just holding the camera no selfie stick. I'm just using the most old-fashioned selfie stick out there, my arm. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And and, uh, and so the phones, I mean, obviously phones are great these days. That Would you, uh, I mean, if somebody was going to take it up a level, I mean, so you, as obviously you're a professional, you're, you're not using a phone, but a lot of people are. Are there... I mean, I guess that's the first question. How good is a phone, and do you, do you find people actually making documentaries using their phones? I, I think the phones are gotten crazy good, and I think you could make one with a phone. Um, if you're going to do a documentary, I'm pretty, pretty confident that for the next few years, films are still going to stay horizontal. So hold your phone sideways, not vertically. Oh, yeah. And then try to use the, the lens on the back of the phone, not the flip yeah. one, even though you can see it. It's bad. You can just practice because that's a better camera generally. But I think you could. And my my advice to people is that at the end of the day, um, story is king. Um, and a good story, even with not perfect high quality footage, is always going to be better than amazing footage without a story. So yeah. if you've got a unique story that, that um, and that goes back to, you know, the old rules of storytelling, you know, you, know, you have a, a hook, a, a, a lead and something emotional, something human, main body. Um, you use all these components um, and you reveal something and, and teach something about uh, whatever the story may be. Then, um, then you then you use whatever footage you can, and, and I think a phone is fine for that. Yeah, it helps to get good footage and mix good footage and good story. But if I would take good story with bad footage any day over just beautiful images with that's empty of story. 
That's right. That's right. That's awesome. That's a, that's another killer tip. Uh, and so my in my eight year old, she had a question for you too. She wanted to know. This is back to the, you know, you guys had such a. And I won't go into the whole background of the movie, but I mean, you guys started out on it and weren't. Uh, it looked like you weren't totally prepared on what you were getting into and kind of had to go back home and and revamp and go back out. But I mean, you guys were. I mean, she wanted to know. Her question was, what did it feel like? You know, like when you got into that sleeping bag and snuggled up after a day's hike. I mean, tell, bring us to that moment. You guys are just getting beat. You're doing this thing. Talk, talk about how you guys, you know, how you survived, what it felt like, and maybe just talk about a little bit of like at night in the sleeping bag and that whole thing. Well, I'll, 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 I'll give two, I'll give a couple versions because it, yeah. it changed. Um, the beginning of the trip, um, I did, and so did Kevin. We did what many people do is we just, we took the Grand Canyon a, a little, you know, we underestimated it, how hard it is. There's, there's no trail and we just kind of overlooked that and no trail means you're climbing over boulders. It's like walking over the furniture in your living room all day long with a, with a heavy pack and we overpacked. So I brought two cameras, which is normal as a photographer filmmaker, but it added up. So I was carrying 65, 70 Jeez. pounds and climbing over the furniture in my living room all day long for 12 hours. And then you raise the temperature to a hundred degrees. It was actually 110 at one point wow. unusually hot when we left in September. Um, but as we know, things are getting weirder and hotter in places like the Grand Canyon. Hmm. Um, when we would open up and lay down, we couldn't move. It was total misery. And, um, one on, I think on day one or day two, I said, Hey, Kevin, I'll, I'll go get water and start making dinner. And he just fell in a heap and said, I'm too tired and in too much pain to eat. My Jeez. eyelids are in pain. Jeez. And he passed out. <laughs> oh. Wow. So our first leg, we, we basically went up and smoke uh, blisters. I got sick and, um, we retreated, um, and had to retool completely and really focus on weight. So I had to ditch all my cameras. I went and did the whole film and magazine story on one camera and one lens, this little tiny Sony thing, which is scary if it breaks because you're in the middle of nowhere. Ooh. But once we got dialed in, then once we snuggled in in certain areas and it wasn't too cold, and we had nights where it was snowing and miserable. But when it was just like on average um, and not, not in the, the center of winter or not too hot, You'd lay down, you just have a tarp, an air mattress in your sleeping bag, and you'd put your pack behind you, and you'd hopefully have water. Water was always a challenge. And you'd lay down and just take it all in, and Kevin and I would just sit there and chat, and it was just total, total magic. And we, I, we were out there, it took us 71 days of walking roughly 15 miles a day. And of those 71 nights, um, I actually did a lot more because I went back and filmed more, but mm. I probably we probably spent um, sixty of them without any kind of shelter. So we're just out under wow. the stars, and that is total magic. And so you can tell your eight year old that <laughs> sleeping under the stars may sound scary, but it's one of the most amazing things you can do on this planet, and it um, gives you perspective. And it's hard, harder and harder to see stars because we have so much light pollution. So if you get a chance to get out to a dark spot. Grand Canyon or somewhere else. Yep. I encourage it to your daughter and anyone else listening. Uh, I love that you said that because, you know, we, we were fortunate uh, to have some pretty amazing stuff out here that you know, we can get out of the cities. And one of the funny things is, is that we love sleeping out under the stars. And I've always done it as a kid too. And, 
And the funny thing is, is that uh, we have rattlesnakes too out here, but, but you know what, my kids, we've been doing it so long now, we throw out a tarp and lay under the stars and they don't even care about the rattlesnakes. They're just like, you know what, we love this. So I, I love that you hit on that. That's perfect. That's great. And rattlesnakes aren't out to get you. They, no. they want to be chilling under the stars too, quietly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, in all the years, that's for, yeah, for anybody worried about it, all the years I've been doing it my whole life, I've never... Well, I've never seen a rattlesnake on my tarp. So, uh, so anyways, that's, uh, that's, I guess, I guess that's all good. Uh, Pete, well, Hey, I could definitely dig into everything you have going, but we'll send, I guess, um, uh, Pete McBride.com if they want to find all your other movies and everything you have going. Yeah. And, um, Instagram is at Pedro McBride. Just briefly, Pedro, what, what's that? What's the Pedro? Uh, just cause, uh, you know, I, I have a. I speak Spanish, and I grew up with a grandfather who was from Guatemala, oh, and yeah. kind of a Latin gene, and and then Pete was taken. There you go. So, Pete was taken. Yeah, Pedro. That's with, awesome. Went with my nickname. A lot of people call me Pedro. So. <laughs> there you go. All right, Pe- Pedro sounds awesome. All right, man. Hey, I, I appreciate you coming on and telling telling your story, a little bit of your story here, and I, I'm excited to keep in touch with you. And I think I will probably uh, touch base with Kevin too, maybe, and see if he could. I'd love to, to hear more of the Emerald Mile story as well. I know that's um, that's an awesome thing. So, yeah, I just want to thank you for taking the time today. Thank you, Dave. It's been a, been a pleasure. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 166. Please check out the new fly shop. We've got a little bit of merch, and uh, we'll be having some other products there as, as we go, Some adding some stuff. That's wetflyswing.com slash shop. I want to thank you again for stopping by today to check out the show. I'm looking forward to catching up this soon. I hope to maybe see you online or on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.